day, all right? Welcome, so glad you're here again um, online in 101, 102, and uh, it is so good to see people in this room. Um, that is such a blessing um, just to be able to be here. Um, so I, I told you this story, um, I guess back in March or April, I think, on video um, when we weren't meeting together, um, but we had an incident last year where we lost our youngest daughter, Kaylee. Um, we were going about a normal day, and just if you haven't heard this story real quickly, we were going about a normal day. I had just left to run to Brookshire's to grab something for dinner, and my wife calls me and says, hey, we can't find Kaylee. And I said, well, she's probably just playing around the house somewhere, and so she starts looking, and I get to the store, and she calls me back and says, hey, I really, I can't find Kaylee. And I said, well, she's there somewhere. We haven't seen her leave or anything. And so um, she calls me back as I'm walking out of the store and says, okay, I'm getting really scared now. I cannot find her anywhere. And I said, okay. And as she's kind of rummaging around, she goes, I think I'm actually going to call the police. And so she gets on the phone and she calls 911 and says, we cannot find at the time our five-year-old daughter. We don't know where she is. And so by the time I got back from Brookshire's, there were literally about 10 police cars at our house, lining our street, and our neighbors were out, and everyone's yelling for Kaylee and searching, and there, these two policemen go through our house, pulling things apart, looking under beds, looking in closets, trying to find our daughter. And we can't find her anywhere. And so I get back and I go into the house and I start running through the house yelling for her and asking, Kaylee, Kaylee, where are you? Where are you? And nothing. And so then we start going neighbor to neighbor. And, and some neighbors, the Basils, who live a, a couple streets over even, came over and they're looking. And it's mass chaos in our house. And I will tell you, I have never felt before like I was going to hyperventilate. But there was this moment of desperation where I didn't know what to do because there was nothing I could do. I was completely helpless. And I just decided there, there was nothing else. We even let our dog in the house to run through the house because he knew something was up. And so Ty, our, our lab, is running through the house trying to find Kaylee, I, I think, or food. <laughs> A free meal or, or Kaylee, one of them. Um, but nothing. And finally, in just kind of a moment of desperation, I went back into her room. And I got under her bed. And in the very back corner of her room, under her bed, dressed in all black, was our daughter under a black blanket, asleep. They were playing hide-and-go-seek, her and Caleb, and she got tired, and she fell asleep under a blanket. And I will tell you, when I walked outside the house holding my daughter, I just sat down in the middle of the sidewalk with her crying because she was scared to death because there were police everywhere, and her dad was breathing a hundred miles an hour. But I can tell you, I have never had a moment where I have been 
so desperate. Have you ever been desperate? Have you ever had one of those moments where literally there was nothing else you could do for the situation? Maybe it was in your marriage as things were crumbling and falling apart. Maybe it was the the loss of a job as you went home that day trying to figure out what your next move is, what you're going to do. Maybe it was the loss of a child. But I think all of us have had those moments where we have felt completely and utterly out of control. Not, Not just a little bit. But if there is nothing else that we could grab hold of or grasp because we're so afraid of what could happen. And throughout the book of Mark, there are so many of these desperate moments. In Mark 1, verse 40, it says, A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you were willing, you can make me clean. A little later in chapter 4, Jesus was at the stern, and, and the, they're on this, this boat, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Again, in chapter 5, there's this lady who has been bleeding, and she just thinks, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. She's tried everything. See, all of us have had these moments of desperation that I think we relate to in some way. Where it feels like there's nothing else that we can do. We're out of options. And I'll tell you, as we were looking for Kaylee, that that was the sense I had. There was nothing else I can do other than look, but I'm completely helpless. And all that, that goes through your mind in those moments is all of the possibilities of what could be. All of the TV shows we've watched, all of the, the news stories we've seen, all of the Amber Alerts we've gotten... What could have happened? And so Mark is dealing with the most important question we've said through this series, and it's this, who is Jesus? Mark is asking, who is Jesus? He wants you to get to that. He begins Mark chapter 1, verse 1, with telling us who he believes Jesus is. He says, this is the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And no one else has ever said Messiah through the stories that we've looked at. They they think he's this healer. They think he's a prophet. They they think there's all sorts of things that he could be. And they're really unsure. And Mark is trying to get us along in this journey with all of the other people, the disciples, and the people that are coming to Jesus, the people that are living with him. And as we go through the series, especially as we lead into next Sunday with Easter Sunday, the question, why does it matter? Not not just simply who is Jesus, but as we answer that question, why does it even matter? And so today what I want to do, I want to look at two stories really, really quickly and look at how they tie together. The first story is about Jesus healing a man who is deaf and mute. And it begins with some men, and I love Mark's detail in the story. He just says, some men brought them, their, their friend, to Jesus. And I think through the friend's perspective, you know, we, we, we heard that there's this guy named Jesus who's healing all of these people. And so we have this friend who can't speak and he can't hear, and so we're going to get him to Jesus. 
And we took him to Jesus, and we're standing there, and he begs Jesus to heal him. And then Jesus looks at him, and it says he sticks his fingers in the man's ear. He spits and touches his tongue. Yes, whoever said that, thank you. This is not a COVID-approved healing. He spits and touches the man's tongue, and the man begins to speak. This man from, I'm guessing, his birth has not been able to hear and not been able to speak. And Jesus in this moment heals him. And it says the people, the people were amazed. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The second story comes right on the the hills of that one in chapter 8. And it's very similar to a story that happened just a few chapters earlier. Jesus has a large crowd. And he's been teaching them. And his disciples are called to him. And he says, I have compassion on these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come from a long distance. And so so Jesus has this moment, and as I read this story, I cannot help but think of my teenagers. My, my, well, not one fixing to be a teenager and one teenager. When, when they're hungry. Oh, Dad, I'm so hungry. I'm, I'm starving. <laughs> anyone, anyone else relate or is that just me? No, no you, you have that. But you get the sense as Jesus is telling this story, it's not that moment, Right? This is literally, they're in a remote place, and you think about the disciples' perspective. We, we, we have already seen this once, where there's this large crowd, and we had some bread, and Jesus asked us again, how many loaves of bread do you have? We have seven loaves, and we have a few fish. And it says that he breaks the bread, and he blesses it, and he has the people sit down, and he starts to pass it out. And what's crazy is we've already seen this happen once, but now it's happening again. And the bread keeps going back through the crowd, and all of a sudden, there's 4,000 people seated on the ground, and they're eating bread and fish, and they have plenty to eat. And in fact, afterwards, we picked up basketfuls of bread left over. We were amazed that this Jesus had done this again. Now now think about it from the perspective of the friends and of the crowd watching the man who was deaf and mute be healed. And moving into the next story where you have thousands of people who just ate. And I wonder if they got a sense of what was happening. Because with the deaf and mute man, there was this audience and they saw it happen. But with the 4,000, it seems to happen so subtly, you wonder if everyone really grasped what actually happened. 
other than the disciples who were right there. As food's being passed back, like, well, I guess they had just prepared for this moment. I guess they had enough bread for us. And this crowd eats and is satisfied. There were 4,000 of them this time, not 5,000 like before. And there were seven loaves this time, not the five. But still, Jesus' power and miracles seem to continue to happen time and time again. And I think Mark has been working really hard to put the pieces of the puzzle together for us. Right? Making sure that we get a picture of what's happening in his gospel. My wife and I love watching crime shows. Like um, FBI and FBI Most Wanted and, and SEAL Team. Criminal Minds was like my all-time favorite show. And, and I love watching the shows week to week and trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Especially as the story builds on the, the weeks before. Trying to figure out and, and watching and, and I love being able to fast forward through the commercial so you can get to the next part of the, the story, right? Without having to learn more about Geico. I don't know where that came from, sorry. But, but we love the puzzle that you're trying to solve. And Mark, right here in his gospel, is putting these pieces together so that you get a clear picture of what's happening. And, and for people who were familiar at this time with the Old Testament, you know, most people believe Mark was actually written to a group of Gentiles. But for people who have that, that understanding and that mind, there's this passage in Isaiah. And I want you to listen to what Isaiah says. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And, and you start thinking through story after story of the eyes being open of a blind man, of the ears being unstopped of a deaf man, and the tongue being loosened. And the lame man, man who is paralyzed, leaping and praising God. Because Isaiah 35 is actually a story about what will happen when Messiah comes. That, that great day when God sends the Messiah to save and redeem and restore all things. There's going to be some signs that point to what's happening. And I think Mark has this picture that he wants you to get that just kind of lays right over the top of the first eight chapters. Now, the, these things are happening. There's a blind man who can see, and there's a deaf man who can hear, and there's a, a paralyzed man who can leap, and there's a man who couldn't speak who can now speak. And it's as if Mark is saying, hey, wake up. This is Messiah. And it seems like they don't get it. Not, not just 
the disciples or the Pharisees, but everyone. This is some great healer. Going back to school, um, my best subjects were recess and lunch. I really excelled in those two classes. Um, my worst class was probably math. Any math people in here? Yeah, I don't care. Um, but, but math, I remember early on we started learning the times tables. Everyone remember the times test you had? Like four times four is 15? No, no. Four times four is 16, or five times five is 25. And it was this race. And it, it was as if the most important thing was to get to the answer. And in math, it's the product, right? That, that's the most important part. It, it's the product, get, getting to the end, the answer. But if you teach math, you know there is absolutely no value in just telling someone the answer. Because, inevitably, there is going to be another question. And it's not just simply knowing the answer, it's knowing how to arrive at the answer. It's the process that is more important than the product. Because you have to be able to repeat that. And what we thought in the beginning was we had these times tables, and it's really important to know that 5 times 5 is 25. But then a couple of years down the road, they start putting parentheses around things and start mixing in the alphabet, and they call it algebra. And then other classes that I wasn't smart enough to take. But if you missed the beginning foundation and it was just about getting the answer, you didn't have the foundation to understand the process to get there. And I think Mark wants us to understand the process of arriving at the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is every bit as important as the answer. Is the answer important? Absolutely. But the process of you arriving there is vital. And I think it's the reason that Jesus just doesn't step out and just say, hey, I'm, I'm Messiah, I'm the new king, I'm Lord. He needs people to get there on their own because if they do not get there on their own, they will never bow their knee and submit to him as king and Lord. The process is more important than the product. It's arriving there. And so the Pharisees have seen all of this, and they ask Jesus for a sign. Okay, we, we, we're kind of getting this puzzle piece together, but we need a sign from you so that we can know, because they're testing him, and they're questioning him, and they're doubting him. So give us a sign, and then we'll believe, then we'll know, and Jesus gets mad at them. And this whole time, the disciples start to get hungry again. I, I really do think they were teenagers, right? Like, oh man, it's been like, like 45 minutes. Dad, I'm starving. Like, they start looking for bread. And the disciples, verse 14, 
The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, now wait a minute. If, if you're a good Jew, you look up at the Pharisees as these people who are revered. They've got this God thing all together. They know what it looks like to be a religious person. And that is the perfect picture of a follower of God. In everyone's mind. But Jesus, he throws them in with Herod. A pagan king. And he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And Herod, going on, they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. It's all about food, right? right? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Again, quoting from Isaiah, are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fell to hear. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? It's this puzzle that's being put together, and I think Jesus is stepping back, and it's kind of at that point when you're putting together a real puzzle where you start to see things, and the only pieces that are left are these kind of vague pieces. It's like, well, just a solid black piece. Like, where does it fit? And I think Mark would say, I've laid this out so beautifully, and if you would just see with your eyes, if you would see with your heart, if you would hear with your ears, then you would realize who this is. You, you would get this picture of Jesus, the Messiah. And you ask, well, what's the yeast then of the Pharisees and of Herod? What, what is he referring to? And I think it's their kingdom vision. Because for the Pharisees, what was the kingdom vision? Well, if we get the law perfect and we do everything right, then we're right with God. And the kingdom vision of Herod was more power and more strength will get us there. Like if we're in power and we have control, then we can push our way to the top. And I think Jesus says neither of those is how we arrive there as a part of the kingdom of God. It's not about having all the right answers and doing all the right stuff. It's not about power and control and government. It's about the kingdom of God coming to earth through the crucified and risen Savior and His people, the church, the body of Christ, reflecting Him in this world. That is how the kingdom of God will come. And I think at times we struggle to see. And we think so much of it relies on us. I, I think we have a, tr a trouble or a problem at times 
with focusing on doing church more than being the church? Or are we doing this right? And we, we have this mindset, I think, of temple worship. Because the purpose of the temple was that is the place where God dwells, and so the people gather at the temple to worship God together. But the first century, the idea of the church was very much different. Because it wasn't a building that God now dwells in. It's the hearts and lives of each of those who have submitted and bowed their knee and been baptized into his name that would be a temple of the living God and he would live inside of us. And so it wasn't coming to church to worship, which we talk about all the time, because worship is something that happens now 24 hours a day, seven days a week because God dwells within us. But now as the church, we collectively gather with worship, of course, on our mind and on our heart, but with the purpose of encouraging one another and lifting one another up and edifying each other and strengthening each other, that we would be the body of Christ sent out into this world to bring the good news and hope of Jesus into this world. That this is not the temple You didn't come here this morning for the purpose of worshiping God. You came here as followers of Jesus, worshiping God, together collectively now lifting up the name of Jesus. You came worshiping, not to worship. Because worship is something that happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because Christ dwells inside you, the temple of God. And it changes the way we see our gathering. Do we worship? Do we celebrate? Absolutely. But that is no different than the other days of the week. It's just what makes this different is now we are gathered as the body of Christ to do it collectively, together, to celebrate the cross and to celebrate an empty tomb. And so this question, they ask for a sign because they want to see. And Jesus is concerned that their hearts are hardened, that their minds have lost focus. And it brings that question back to mind again, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because the answer to that question as we've been saying through this series, is probably the most important question anyone could possibly ask you. Because if Jesus is Messiah, as he claims to be, the Messiah is king of the world. And you have to make a decision, a choice, if you believe he is who he says he is. And Mark has done a masterful job of placing the puzzle pieces together. And here's the beauty of of us as the church. is each of us is just a small piece of that puzzle that God has been working on for thousands of years through the centuries. And so many times we think our life is so significant and so big and so important 
but to remember that we're just simply a small piece of God's much bigger, bigger story. So what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? What does it mean for us as we encourage one another and lift each other up and together try to pursue Jesus, but also pursue people? And I think one of the things that's really stood out from the Gospel of Mark is the place people were that pursued Jesus with the most desperation. And it was the people who were in pain that seemed to constantly be searching. It was the people who were in those places of desperation that needed something. And maybe one of the greatest things that I think I'm taking from Mark's gospel is that I believe one of the the most powerful ministry opportunities that you and I have is to pursue people in places of pain. Now, Now understand, when I say that, that doesn't mean look for people in pain, and our purpose is to go to pursue them so that we can convert them and get them to be one of us. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is we go pursue people in those places of pain Because God loves them, and God loved us, and in our pain and in our desperation, He sought us out, and He loved us, and He pursued us, and as His people, we are called to be His hands and feet. We are to go show God's love to those people in pain, and it's those people who are in the places of pain that need Jesus so badly But more than anything else, I think they realize how badly they need Jesus. Because in those moments of desperation, where there's nothing else to do and nowhere else to turn, it seems like we're so open to God. What what if, as a ministry focus, it was those people in pain that drove our ministries? I heard a ministry we're we're beginning here in the next um, several months that's going to minister to single mothers, to those people who are hurting and trying to figure things out. We we have a ministry like that in Wings. We're we're doing some amazing things um, with Triumph Village and now our bridge ministry that helps them move from Triumph Village into real life again and finding jobs. And we we have those opportunities, those touch points with people who are broken and hurting that we have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of God in their life. To be and bring the touch of Jesus. The touch that can allow a man to hear or a mute man to speak. The touch that can allow someone who's been paralyzed to run and leap like a deer. The touch that we believe brings restoration and hope to this world. So today, we have the blessing of gathering together as the church in worship coming as worshipers 
to lift one another up, to encourage, to strengthen, so that the body of Christ may be complete. And we have the blessing of being a small part in God's story, bringing His healing and restoration into this world. Father, today, we thank You so much for the opportunity to gather. We thank You that Your Spirit dwells, not in a temple, not in a building, but, Father, within each and every one of us. And, Father, we pray that our lives are a continual act of worship. It is something that never ceases. It never stops. And so as we gather and we worship, Father, we lift one another. We encourage one another. We strengthen those who are feeble and those who are struggling and those who are trapped in addiction. And Father, we we find fellowship with them because we have all been there. There is no one who is without sin, not one of us. And so, Father, today, remind us of how desperate we are for your love. Father, fill us with your grace and lead us to be your ambassadors in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.